Hello, goblins and ghouls, and welcome to my Haunted Life podcast. I'm your host, Angela Hartshorn, and today I'm telling you about the time I got caught in a rainstorm while ghost hunting at one of our favorite haunted bathrooms. Good morning, goblins and ghouls. I hope you are having a great day because you deserve it. Because you are a wonderful person. I myself am dragging a bit. (laughs) I'm not sure if Podcat Lily kept me up or I'm getting sick again. Or I'm just too old for Mardi Gras celebrations even in my little town. So if I sound a little icky, that's why. I don't know how people do this for a month. Oh my god. Uh, But at least we know it's not COVID, right? You can't get back-to-back COVID like that. Now I'm paranoid. I'll look it up after recording. A small amount of housekeeping today. I will hopefully be getting the website up and going here again very soon. I got a lovely email that says my domain's gonna expire, so I have to do it. Um, I feel like I'm getting close, but we all should know by now that technology is my downfall. In cool new news, however, I apparently have a YouTube page up and going, and I'm having a lot of fun with it, honestly. I think I forgot to link last week's video to the Patreon, but definitely, if you are on YouTube, please hop over and subscribe to the new channel. It, it, it's really kind of fun. Also, apparently, the new podcast hosting thing puts the whole episode up so you can listen to the whole episode from YouTube you can't see any of the cool video but the whole podcast is there for another option to listen I thought that was really spiffy also if you hop over please leave a comment different from you should have shot this in landscape thanks I know now Uh, at least the first guy was really nice about it Anyway, I feel like I need a drum roll for this one. On this week's episode, I'm taking you ghost hunting at the infamous Witch's House in Portland. I didn't think I would actually find so much history on this one, but I found a treasure trove of stuff. Most of the hauntings appear to revolve around one horrific murder which I found newspaper stories from the time recounting the tale in graphic detail. Heads up. I have had so many of you ask about this one. So longtime listeners, the first time I was in Portland, I didn't get to go to this place. And we talked about it on the top 10 haunted bathrooms episode. And I finally got to go. So that's what we're talking about today. 
I love this place. I didn't get to do much in the way of ghost hunting with the storms and random people around, but there's a little bit. Also, I think this video will be one of the longest ones on YouTube and Patreon. I tried to combine those. That's kind of cool because we just kept getting more and more footage of this place because it was just so pretty and surreal. So let's get into it, shall we? Grab yourself a cup of tea, make sure the doors are locked and the sage is close by. I have a story to tell you. The Witch's Castle is just down the lower Mick. I've looked this up a couple times. McLee, McLay Trail from the Piddock Mansion in Forest Park, which is like five thousand acres of the luscious greenery I have ever seen in my life. One of the things I had to keep pointing out is just how thick the vegetation was and this is why Bigfoot has never been found. Literally you step like five feet off the trail and sit down and you would never be found. It's amazing. There's apparently 80 miles of trails and the trails I saw were some of the nicest I have ever hiked. You're probably sick of hearing me say it but the Pacific Northwest is a rainforest and we hiked down from the Piddock Mansion as it rained very heavily. And then it would stop and get all humid as hell and then start another downpour. And it was cool because the tall trees around you, you would hear the rain definitely coming before it got to you. So you, there was time to get cover. It, it was, it was cool. I loved it. <laughs> um, the only thing was the rocks. <laughs> They're, they like build the trails around rocks and those could get a little bit slippery and I almost busted my ass multiple times. It's a little over two miles from the Piddock Mansion to the Witch's Castle along the trail. But it felt much longer in the weather. Lots of steeps, ups and downs, and switchbacks didn't help either. I took so much video of trees and leaves and water, it, it's not even funny. Then quite literally around a bend pops up the witch's castle. The witch's castle is the skeleton of an old gray stone two-story building covered with moss and colorful graffiti. The walls are like a foot thick, so I don't think the remains are going anywhere anytime soon. The entire time we were out there, the hubs and I kept bringing up how much it looked like a point of interest in one of the Fallout games and how there should be a l some loot buried nearby. It was honestly surreal. I know I've used that term a lot this time, but you get the idea. I don't know if 
it was the storm or pressure change or what. But there was a very weird vibe out there. Not positive or negative. Just like it was energized. It was kind of strange. The witch's castle has been a part of local Portland legend since it was built. So maybe that has something to do with it. I also can't determine if the vibe is from actual history of the place or from the people out there trying to find something, creating a weird energy feedback loop kind of thing. What I do know is that the Witch's Castle was built in the 1930s as a park ranger station and restrooms for hikers maintained by Portland Parks and Recreation. On October 12, 1962, the structure was heavily damaged by the Columbus Day Storm, the same one that had damaged the Piddock Mansion, and was later abandoned. Moss soon covered the stone walls, the roof caved in, and some people graffitied the walls. It was mostly forgotten until the 1980s, when local high school students found it and realized it was a fun place to hold parties. The students named it the Witch's Castle, despite a little loose connection to witches, and made a tradition of holding gatherings there on Friday nights, something that still happens today according to a surprising amount of articles. That being said, the Witch's Castle is said to be haunted because the land it sits on has had a horrific history. It's a very tranquil spot, but the history of the family connected to the area is anything but tranquil. Honestly, I thought all of the story was legend, but it's actually very well documented. This story is insane and gets pretty dark. So, trigger warning. We are talking about possible SA and incest and most definitely murder. Our story revolves around a man named Danford Blatch. He traveled to Oregon in 1847 on the Oregon Trail with his wife, Mary Jane, a pretty young widow with two children, with whom he had married around 1842. It's a little iffy on the time, but that's like the estimate. They crossed the continent in a covered wagon with their several children, hers and ours, as he wrote later. Apparently there was like nine of them. A lot. There's a lot of kids. He was only 31. Not sure how old Mary Jane was. In 1850, Blanche moved west to Portland and settled on a land claim of about 346 acres. Today, a lot of that land is now Forest Park, as well as the Northwest Heights neighborhood 
which has some of the most valuable real estate in the entire state. In Danford's day though, it was fairly remote and mostly thickly forested. But as a decade passed and Portland grew, Blatch found himself a pretty important fellow. Now, if you go through the newspaper archives of the time, which I did, you will find that there was a lot of controversy over this land. It seemed for about 20 years, Blatch fought with his neighbors over exactly where the boundaries of the land were, who owned what, that sort of thing. One of these families was the Stump family. That's important later. There's 346 acres. That's a lot of land. And it's not like flat farmland. It's rocky and hilly. Of course, the big money in Portland at the time was logging, but the area we were in would suck to get logs out of. But I read other things that the land was used for farmland. So I don't know. I'm not an expert on that part. Anyway, like I said, it's a lot of land and Blat Blatch, I think I might just go with Danford. It's easier to say. Danford needed help clearing it, so he hired a man named Mortimer Stump. It appears that Stump was a member of one of the families that did quarrel with Danford at one point over the land, but it seems like things have settled down between the families enough. I don't know. Not much is really connecting there. But all we know for sure is that Mortimer was hired by Danford. At least I guess we could assume so that everything, you know, quieted down. I guess it's possible that Mortimer is from a different Stump family, but that seems weird to me in Stump Town. It gets a little repetitive. Anyways. I have a feeling I'm going to say that a lot. I'm not sure where Mortimer lived previously, but he moved into the cabin on the property with the Blatch family, into the Blatch family homestead, with the entire family. That's Danford, his wife, and their nine children. That might seem very weird today, but it was kind of the thing to do. Traveling craftsmen and such would basically just hole up with the family until the work was done. Seems very safe. Anyway, over time, Stump and Danford's daughter, Anna, the oldest child, fell in love. And eventually, Stump asked Danford for Anna's hand in marriage. Danford just flat out refused. Anna Blatch, then only 15 years old, was forbidden by her father to be with Mortimer. Most of the stories say that Blatch was against the marriage because he felt that Mortimer was behind, beneath his daughter. Of course, young love is stupid, and Mortimer and Anna threatened to elope. Danford then threatened to kill Mortimer if 
the two Starcrust lovers decided to take it any further. I assume you can see what's coming here. <clears throat> the young couple didn't heed the warning and decided to elope in November of 1858. It appears they ran off to Vancouver. Other places I read said into Portland. Most say Vancouver, though. Danford later wrote, The night I came home and found the girl gone, it struck a pain to my heart like a knife cutting me. I ate a little supper and went to bed, but did not sleep a wink at all. In the morning, at once, after getting up, I started for town. It seemed as if my stomach would burst from anxiety and grief, which were more than I can express. When Danford learned of the elopement, he became deeply depressed, which led to days of no sleep and heavy drinking. According to legend, during this time, Danford's wife, Mary Jane, quote-unquote, nagged him over and over to do something about the elopement. Some people also claim that Mary Jane practiced witchcraft of some kind, some kind of folk magic. No more details than that. And somehow bewitched her husband to do what happened next. I found this article in the Daily Alta California on November 29th, 1858, for a man who was an eyewitness to the aftermath of the murder who started doing some investigation of his home, of his own. There we go. It's a bit of a hard read, so be patient with me. Our Oregon Correspondence. A horrid, cold-blooded murder. A bridegroom killed by his father-in-law. The wife a widow after 10 days of marriage. Portland, Oregon Territory. November 18th, 1858. Our community is thrown into intense excitement this afternoon by the report of a gun and immediately thereafter that a man had been shot dead. It was scarce a minute before half the city was seemed in motion. So seldom are our ears greeted with such sounds coupled with such deeds i stepped to the door of the hotel just in time to see a man somewhat advanced in years being hurried to prison in charge of several citizens he it was i was informed had committed the deed which upon investigation was found to be the most cold-blooded murder that it has ever been my province to chronicle. The circumstances are as follows. The man who did the murder was Danford Blatch, a man to all appearances of 40 years of age, an old resident of this county, has a farm of 600 and 40 acres of land within two miles of this city where he resided with his family 
consisting of a wife and six children. The man killed was Mortimer Stump, a young man, apparently not more than three and twenty years of age. It appears that this young man had been in the employ of Blatch during the last summer working on the farm, during which time he became attached to one of Blatch's daughters, a girl some 16 to 18 years of age. Stump asked Blatch's consent to marry her, but was refused. And at some time, he drove him from the house and forbid him ever to cross his threshold again. Nothing further was thought of this matter till some 10 days ago when Stump managed to elope with the girl and marry her at Vancouver, from whence he then took her to his father's house, some 10 miles from Portland, where they lived up to the day of the shooting. On the day of the trouble, Stump and his wife had come to Portland for the purchase for the purpose of buying some necessary articles with which to commence housekeeping. It seems that Blatch was on the lookout and, uh, and also made his appearance in town armed with a double-barreled shotgun. He did not, however, carry his gun with him through the streets during the day but had it put where it would be handy in case of need, thus proving that the whole thing was a premeditated affair. Stump and Blatch came together once or twice during the day when some harsh words passed between them. They were, however, separated by the bystanders, and so the matter rested till late in the afternoon when Stump, having made all of his purchases, loaded them in the wagon, which proceeded to and got on the ferry boat when Stump and his wife walked down to it. And while assisting his wife to the seat on the front, Blatch walked down to the boat, stepped up to the after part of the wagon, and when Stump looked round, he leveled his gun and deliberately shot him the whole contents of one barrel, a heavy charge of buckshot, taking effect in his neck, almost literally shooting his head from his body. Blatch was immediately arrested by the bystanders before he had an opportunity to use the other load which it is said he intended to do on the person of his daughter. The perpetrator of this most foul murder has heretofore sustained a good character in this community for honesty, industry, and sobriety, and was to all appearances an inoffensive, quiet man. The same can be said of the deceased. What could have prompted Blatch to commit so foul a deed is a mystery to all. Thus, he has blasted 
all his earthly hopes and brings his family to punery and want. In the midst of life, we are in death, even in Oregon. So from what we've seen already, this article is definitely from an eyewitness who saw the aftermath of everything, like I said. It definitely wrote a lot of the, I don't want to say gossip per se, but there's definitely some salaciousness in there. Because there's, there's facts wrong. There, there's a lot in there that's very interesting. But I feel like he probably got the base notes correct on this one. I found a few more articles after this as well. The Portland Daily Oregonian described the crime itself uh, in a little bit more detail. March 15, 1879. Blatch, a 46-year-old white man, resided with his wife and family about one mile west of Portland, uh, I can't say the county name, I'm sorry, Oregon. He and his wife objected to the courtship of one of their daughters by a young man named Mortimer Stump and forbade the girl to see him. Miss Blanche eloped with Mr. Stump and they were married in Portland on November 18, 1858. When Blatch learned that they had left together, he armed himself with a shotgun loaded with buckshot and followed them to the Stark Street ferry boat, which he also boarded. While Mr. and Mrs. Stump stood talking with Stump's father, Blatch walked to them on the slip of the boat and fired the gun at Stump's head. The load took effect in his head and neck, killing him instantly. Blatch promptly surrendered himself to authorities in Portland and was placed in jail. This article makes it sound like Blatch was willing to pay for his crimes, but his later actions said otherwise. On April 27, 1859, he and three other prisoners managed to escape from custody, but Blatch remained in the vicinity, frequently visiting and staying in his own home. He was recaptured there several weeks later on August 17th. He was tried, convicted, and sentenced to die for the murder. I get that Blatch's homestead was supposed to be far away from the city we've seen in the different newspaper accounts and everything from one mile to two miles which doesn't seem that far but you know modern transportation might make that seem that far I don't know but come on several weeks he's out on a lamb and he's basically just hung out at home. I don't think they were trying too hard to catch this guy. 
Danford basically shot some guy's head off and just got to chill out for a bit before his trial. But at least he was sentenced to die, so, you know, I guess that's something. Prior to the execution, Danford told his spiritual advisor that he had not intended to kill Stump and had taken the weapon with him for self-defense when he went in search of his daughter. He said that it had discharged accidentally. There was no appeal of the conviction and he was hung in the presence of between five and 600 people, mostly from the rural areas on the north side of the old courthouse, which stood at the northwest corner of Front and Salmon Streets in Portland on October 17th, 1859. He made no last statement. At the hanging, Portlandiers were shocked to see a dry-eyed Anna Blatch stump there with her in-laws. They were there to watch Blatch die. The reporter from the Portland, Oregon, Oregoner, was aghast. The idea of a daughter, by her own volition, attending the execution of a father upon a gallows is a disgrace to the intelligence of the age and to every principle of fellow feel affection manifested or exhibited by every species of the brute creation in sea or upon earth. He wrote in the following week's paper, the fact is of a character that we cannot pass unnoticed and must meet with surprise, reprobation, and distension of the whole community. I, I don't know what it is about this guy but I find him the most obnoxious that uh, she got to like front row seat to watch her new husband be murdered in a horrific way by her father and she's the one getting chastised for being at her father's execution. I don't know. There's a lot of like gossip column vibes around this whole story in all the papers at the time. It, it It's really interesting, to be perfectly honest. Anna, it seems, was ready to see her father die, though. But it could it have just been over him killing her new husband? There has been some speculation that it might have been deeper and even more awful than that. Remember Danford's heartsick writings from prison? A quick reminder. He wrote, The night I came home and found the girl gone, it struck a pain to my heart like a knife cutting me. I ate a little supper and went to bed, but did not sleep a wink at all. In the morning, at once, after getting up, 
I started for town. It seemed as if my stomach would burst from anxiety and grief, which were more than I can express. Historian Diane Growers Gardner writes in her book, Neck Parties, the description he gave of his emotional, physical, and psychological state sounded more like a man describing the loss of a lover than a daughter. Her observation takes a particularly sinister tint in light of the fact that Anna was probably Blatch's stepdaughter. The dates are fuzzy, but remember, Mary J. Blatch had two children already when Danfer married her in 42. One of these was probably Anna, because everything states that she's the oldest child in the Blatch home in 1858 when all this happened. I thought it was interesting that all these articles was were putting an emphasis on her being his stepdaughter, like a biological father molesting their daughter doesn't happen. This man raised her from a small child. He was her father, period. Here's the thing with this part of the story. It is pure speculation. No one really knows if Blatch hurt his daughter, but it would help to explain why she was so quick to marry the first man that she could and get the hell out of that house and why she was so devastated over Stump's death. Who knows? It's one of those, we have to be careful with these things. Maybe the poor thing was still in shock over everything. You can't judge people's reactions in a time of grief and trauma. This really reminded me of how people started speculating over the whole why did Lizzie do it with the Lizzie Borden case? And we just we don't we don't have proof of that. But it kept coming up in the different stories and everything, so I felt like it needed to be mentioned. But remember speculation. On October 17, 1859, Danford Blatch became the first legal execution in Oregon. After Blatch's death, the battling over the land continued with the neighbors. Mary Jane continued to live on the land and eventually remarried. Anna, it appears, had a life after all of this. Now, I tried looking her up on Ancestry and I couldn't find her. Doesn't mean she's not there, I just can't find her. But I did find her on Find a Grave. There's four husbands, including Stump, associated with Anna. I'm not sure if the notes on her page are wrong or that the links need to be updated. It does appear that our girl did remarry at least twice. One of the husbands died young, again, so she remarried. It appears she had a couple of kids. 
her last husband, Alexander B. Hamilton, and her lived in a lovely home in Portland, only a few blocks away from the land once owned by Blatch. It's listed on the National Registry of Historic Places, but it appears to be a private residence from the best I can tell, so I'm not going to give out the address. Anna passed away on the 15th of February, 1920, at the age of 78. The small snippet of an obituary I found reads, Hamilton, in the city formerly of blank, Savelle Street, Severe Street, February 17th, Anna Hamilton, age 78, one week. 78 years, one week. There we go. Beloved wife of the late Alexander Hamilton. Funeral services will be held Thursday, February 19th at 10 a.m. at the family residence. I'm not sure if that's the address I'm not supposed to read. I didn't notice that was there. That's funny. Um, Intermittent Greenwood Cemetery. Arrangements in care of Miller and Tracy. So, in the end, it appears she did find happiness. The property was passed around through different hands down through the next century, eventually being bequeathed to the city of Portland. In 1897, the land was given by its then-owner, Donald McClay to be used as a park. McClee? I think it's McLean. When architects started working on the park, it was decided that one of the most picturesque spots was an area they described as deep and romantic wooded ravine called Blatch Canyon. And that any changes made to the natural landscape should be engineered to complement the region's natural beauty rather than conquer it. They should be mainly as a woodsman builds at places remote from civilization. The architect of the stone house took that suggestion to heart and created an endearing landmark. The stone structure that is seen today was built near the Blatch homestead. There are a lot of stories claiming that it was once once the Blatch homestead, but the stone house was built in the 1930s to house restrooms, a picnic shelter, and a tool room. Designed by architect Ernest F. Tucker, who also contributed the first designs to the Portland Zoo, The building was officially called the McClay Park Shelter. It is still marked on trail signs as the Stone House today. The structure was officially abandoned after the plumbing system was damaged during the Columbus Storm, Columbus Day Storm of 1962, which I feel like we have talked about in almost every Portland episode so far, but just as a little reminder, 
the Columbus Day Storm is on record as a contender for the most powerful extratropical cyclone recorded in the U.S. in the 20th century, and which was linked to 46 fatalities throughout the Pacific Northwest. And so the stone house sat abandoned, wrecked by the storms. Eventually, the roof collapsed. They took out all the plumbing and let the house be taken over by moss, basically. Eventually, it was discovered by teenagers with spray paint, making it this weird, bright piece of art in the middle of the woods. Around this time is when the ghost stories started. Right after this, I'll be back to tell you about how the stone house became the witch's castle and take you along on my own very short ghost hunt. So, there are some differing accounts as to why the stone house became known as the witch's castle. Some people say that the witch associated with the castle is the spirit of Mary Jane Blatch, Dunford's wife, who local legend says bewitched her husband to kill Mortimer Stump after he ran off with their daughter Anna. Others say in the 70s and 80s, the castle was the site for witches to come out and cast spells and, as one article put it, conduct unnatural rituals. I just like that description. Honestly, this place looks like it would be a blast for that, let's be honest. The castle looks like something out of a fairy tale storybook that your local witch would live in. So I think it really makes sense. <laughs> There's definitely a weird out energy out there. And apparently quite a bit of ghost and paranormal experiences. The ghosts appear to be Danford, Mortimer, Mary Jane, and Anna still locked in their ongoing ghostly feud. People have seen apparitions out there and I mean, I found pictures of older Anna, um, but that's who they identified was our, our main suspects. People have reported hearing wicked laughter, sinister whispers, and screams of terror. Many have also claimed to see dark figures darting between the trees and behind the shrubbery and in and out of the old stone structure. Which kind of sounds terrifying. There have been reports of bright glowing lights encircling the building before disappearing into the woods and even a few reports of full-bodied apparitions of young women and children. So I have no idea who the children would be. It was a little unclear if any of the Blatch children died on the property. Um, if you remember at the beginning, I said that there were nine kids. 
The article from the gentleman from California said there were six kids. Which, you know, that, that was our gossip guy, so there's a possibility he's just wrong. But on Find a Grave, I could only find three of the children, including Anna. So I thought that was interesting. Although, to be fair, I couldn't find Mary Jane either. So, I don't know. I thought that was weird. But since Mary Jane got remarried, she probably changed, whatever. Anyways, today hikers claim that they can hear phantom toilets flushing and a general feeling of deep unease. Others claim that there is an overall feeling of discomfort and fear. A lot of this sounds like residual kind of energy. So, but, but I don't know. When we were out there, it definitely had a strange vibe, for sure. I'm not sure if it was the storm or pressure change or what. I got very lightheaded, almost giddy. It was weird. I forgot the names of the people <laughs> that were reportedly haunting the place and had to look them up. You guys know how I am with my history. It was weird that I, like, researched this right before we left and then forgot, like, everything. We didn't get to investigate much. We kept having people coming up and down the trails. At one point, we were in the castle away from the storm when a mother and three little girls came running in out of the rain. I wasn't exactly going to be pulling out the ghost box then. Although it was weird because the little girl kept complaining that somebody was watching her. She felt like something was watching her from behind and screamed and left. But she was like the medium, like the middle child. It was, it was strange. Even though it's a public place and apparently people do it all the time, you know, I don't like to do that. I, it, there was just too much contamination. It's like there'd be times where, like, I would do the ghost box and you would hear a voice and you were like, oh, man, that's exciting. And then realize it was somebody outside kind of thing. That happened numerous times. There were a group. There was a group of women that came up at the end yelling and screaming, possibly drunk at like 4 a.m., like happy yelling and screaming. That was basically when I called it. I'm not sure if I got anything, but listen and see if you catch anything. There's definitely one little segment that I think I might have, but I'm not going to tell you anything else to see if, see if you got it. I also got a lot of footage of this place. I, I did several different ghost hunting stuff. So I will be getting that up on the Patreon as soon as possible. Filming.
Is anyone here? Danford Blatch. Are you here? Is Anna here? Did you just stop the cycling from going at all? Or? No, I uh, was doing it in reverse before. Mm. When I turn it off. Hello? Is Motormer here? else that would like to come through and talk to us?
Do you want to show yourself? Are you the one messing with my hair?
So, did you hear anything? To me, it sounds like you can hear two men talking near the beginning. At that time, there was no one else around us. So I thought that was very interesting. There's also the weird sounds like a, a big old truck or a freight train nearby something. I have no idea what that was. We were in fact pretty tucked up in there and away from any road or train track. So that was very strange listening back to it. Because you can kind of hear where it comes and goes, where it almost sounds like an oscillating fan. I don't know if that's like a trick of the sounds with the phones or, you know, the rain. I have no idea what that is. That is weird. But I don't know. Uh, unexplained, not necessarily paranormal. I actually forgot about the feeling like something was messing with my hair. I feel like I misspoke in the moment, though. It didn't really feel like somebody was playing with my hair. I really couldn't determine, like, like the best I could describe it is when you go to get your hair cut and they, like, section off your hair to like trim or whatever and then they like lift the piece to do whatever with it that's what it felt like it it felt like a chunk of hair was being lifted but also there was like a ton of static on the back of my neck so that was weird um Especially since I was wearing a hat <laughs> the whole time. I'm almost 100% sure. Uh, and you'll see that in the video when I get that done. So I, I thought that was strange. But you could like feel it move under the hat. It was, it was weird. I had one outside friend listen to the clip. And she thought she might have heard growling, but listening back with good headphones, I think it might have just been my husband repositioning. I'm not 100% sure. Oh, also, there is definitely a jogger that runs past. So if you hear like the duh, 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 very clearly, that's the jogger. But let me know what you think. Please, please, please. I love this part. I I love it when people get on and critique the hell out of anything I found. So yeah, please let me know. Email me at myhauntedlifepodcast at gmail.com or write me on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok, and now YouTube. And also, of course, we have the Facebook group. So, yeah, definitely get on, check those out, comment. When you are there, please like, follow, and comment. It honestly makes my day. I just wanted to thank you all for listening today. 
My Haunted Life podcast is written, researched, produced, edited, and hosted by me, Angela Hartshorn. If you're interested in more pictures, info, and sources, the sources will go in the show notes. I'm still working on the the figuring out what's going on with the the website. I'm hoping. I'm hoping by next episode we'll have it. We'll have an answer. But definitely, like I said, the Patreon. Patreon has everything. And you can support the show for as little as $2 a month. And honestly, most of the stuff is free anyway. So you can just hop on and check out the stuff. Music is by Ghost Stories Incorporated. And that's it for this show. I'll see you all next week on my Haunted Life podcast. And until then, stay spooky.